Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is John Ryan, CEO and director of Gold Express Mines, a multi-asset mineral resources company focused primarily on the acquisition, exploration, evaluation and development of precious metal properties across the US. Um, John is a mine engineer by background. Um, he also studied finance, enabling him to start, develop, and operate a handful of natural resource companies during his career. Um, he also served on boards of many companies, um, although I'll let John divulge into that in more detail. So that's welcome, John, to the podcast. How are you doing, John? I'm doing great. Thank you uh, for inviting me. Appreciate it. No, that's, that's great, and um, good to get you on the show. Um, I wonder if you can give our audience a background um, about yourself, about your career. Um, obviously, you had quite quite a few years in the mining industry, so I appreciate if you can uh, um, tell us a little bit more about about yourself and about your career. Absolutely, be happy to. So, I uh, grew up in North Idaho uh, in the Coeur d'Alene Mining District, which a lot of people it's pretty well known mining district. Uh, one of the largest silver mining districts in the world and, and the largest silver producer in the United States. And actually uh, the virtual background there behind, behind me is, uh, is a head frame of the Hecla mine, which is the original property that Hecla Mining Company uh, uh, grew out of. Uh, the mine was founded around the 1885, 1888 time period and, uh, and uh, produced till about 1943. It was a major producer for Hecla for many, many years, base metals and silver. So uh, my family's uh, four generations of mining people going back to Leadville, Colorado in the 1870s. And I have a bachelor's degree in mining engineering from the University of Idaho. Got that in 1985. Uh, moved on. Uh, I did a four-year naval officer commitment uh, stationed in Newport, Rhode Island on a, on a fast frigate there, a Knox-class frigate. Um, and uh, after that, got a, a law degree from Boston College law school, then moved back out to North Idaho and uh, pretty quickly got myself back involved in the mining sector, um, teaming up with my longtime business associate, Howard Crosby. Uh, our first company was Royal Silver Mines, uh, traded on the OTC bulletin board at the time. We had projects in Idaho initially, and then uh, actually ended up in Chile and Argentina, frankly, with some projects. Uh, which were very promising projects, for, uh, but uh, got cut off in 1998 by the, the Briax fiasco, which kind of shut down junior miners for two or three years, if you might recall that period. It's quite a ways in the past now. But anyway, uh, ultimately, we were pleased with that company. Royal Silver turned into an oil and gas company in about 2001 or two, and uh, we were able to, to have some success in the oil and gas business and listed on Amex and grow it to a fairly healthy market cap before it got uh, sold to a private equity company. In 2002, actually, uh, right at the beginning when gold was kind of lifting off from sort of the $300 per ounce range, uh, myself and Howard and two geologists from Nevada formed a company called Western Goldfields with uh, half a dozen uh, prospective Nevada properties. Very quickly, we ended up uh, negotiating with Newmont on the Mesquite mine in uh, Southern California. Uh, which is now owned and operated by Equinox, but at that time it was closed. Uh, the the heap, uh, leap, heap leach was still producing gold, but the mining fleet had been removed by Newmont. Uh, anyway, we bought that project for a total of about $15 million, if my memory serves correct. About eight of it was a loan from Newmont, um, which we were paying off the cash flow off the heap leach. Uh, ultimately, that, that project was acquired by Randall Oliphant, uh, it became part of New Gold. Western Goldfields was merged into New Gold or became part of New Gold. And, you know, the story from there is Mesquite grew into a four and a half million ounce uh, resource from about 900,000 ounces that Newmont had it at, pegged at, 
But of course, Newmont was doing their numbers at $325 gold back then. So we knew it was a lot bigger and, and uh, Newmont felt it was too small for him. So it was a perfect combination, perfect situation, frankly. But, uh, you know, it turned into new gold, which operated it for, uh, you know, whatever it was from, say, 2005 when they got it into production or 2006, uh, all the way till 16 or 17, or I can't remember exactly when Equinox bought it two or three years ago. And it's, it's still, uh, you know, got a pretty decent little mine life ahead of it. So it, it's been a big producer. But that tells you, you know, what you can buy at the bottom of the gold market, right? Uh, you know, and people that were initial early shareholders in, in uh, Western Goldfields obviously did very well. And we had some institutional kind of people involved as well. And people still come back to me and say, you know, that was one of the most amazing purchases we've ever seen executed in the mining business. And it was just frankly dumb luck. If you really want to say it, Toby Mancuso, one of the directors uh, and actually the president of the company uh, happened to make a phone call to the right person at Newmont. That's what happened. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's one thing that, that, you know, that we were talking about how do you have success in this business? And part of it is in fact, definitely luck. Uh, you know, 2000, 2004, uh, I started a company called High Plains Uranium, which uh, uh, a guy named Jim Boffman, who's who I still work with, a geologist out of Wyoming, a friend of mine, Kurt Hoffman from North Idaho, Howard, of course, was involved. And we started off with a quarter of a million dollars private placement from a from a from a high high net worth individual because we liked the looks of uranium at that point in time, 2004, summer of 2004. And and again, you know, we went out and and looked at a lot of old data, historic data from the 1970s when companies were drilling uranium, uh, and and a lot of those projects just went by the wayside when Three Mile Island happened, right? And the uranium price got got knocked knocked down and and by the way uranium stayed down because of the fact that the you know that we had the nuclear arms build down which created a lot of uranium supply but but the lesson here was again we happened to get data from from by this time these are guys that were geologists that had retired that had data stored for 20 years and and we you know for 30 years we negotiated deals on the data with them and you know again blind luck we actually it was one property really frankly that made the company of property in wyoming that a group energy metals just happened to need they wanted it they had half of it we had the other half uh and and that was a one property out of the eight or ten properties we had that basically caused energy metals to to negotiate a buyout of the company in 2006 and energy metals four months later was bought out by uranium one so again this is you just don't know exactly what what you're going to stumble upon or luck into or happen to stake, uh, you know, right before somebody else decided to stake it. Uh, and and in this case, uh, yeah, it was just one property. And by the way, you know, Uranium One has been privatized at this point in time, and and you'll still see High Plains Uranium as a subsidiary. Uh, and the chairman of the company now is listed as uh, as uh, as Putin. <laughs> because yeah. the Russians bought up uranium one. It's, yeah. it's an amazing story. But uh, that was 2004 through 2006. In 2006, again, um, you know, we did an early SPAC in the mining business in 2006. We actually raised on the London AIM over $100 million for a mining SPAC in 2006. There were quite a few SPACs happening back then on the London AIM friend of mine, Nathan Lowe from Sunrise Securities was kind of driving that and, and kind of, he says he's in the inventor of the SPAC. Okay. I don't know if he's the inventor or not, but he sure did about a dozen of them very successfully in, in the period 2005 to say 2008. Um, but anyway, we did a SPAC that uh, was about a hundred million plus SPAC and we were looking for deals and uh, um, we, I was calling people, I was calling, you know, people like Hecla Mining Company or, or Newmont or whoever, just saying, do you have any properties for sale? And, and it was, you know, good old cold calling, right? You hope you reach the right person. As it turned out, I called Mitch Krebs, who was then the uh, uh, VP of corporate development of, of CORE. Of course, he's now the CEO. And I said, do you, do you guys have anything for sale? And he says, no, not really. Don't think so. 
But about two weeks later, I got a call back from him and he said, you know, um, you know, we're interested in possibly selling the North Idaho assets of core, which, you know, you're undoubtedly familiar with the, the Galena mine and such. And I said, yeah, familiar with it. I actually worked there as a summer college student, you know, so, uh, you know, it was middle of April of 2006. We, I flew out to Coeur d'Alene, met with Mitch uh, and Dennis Wheeler, who was then the CEO and chairman. Um, and we negotiated the $15 million price for, for, uh, for the entire Galena complex, including the core mine and, and all their patented claims in the silver belt of the Coeur d'Alene district. Uh, and it was April 15th and, and, uh, and Dennis told me, he says, John, you gotta close this by June 1st because I wanna have these numbers in my June queue. And I says, okay. And he goes, you know, you're getting a steal on this property. And I said, yeah. And he goes, but it, my market cap's going to go up a lot more than the purchase price when I, when I get rid of the Galena. I love the Galena, but he goes, it's a high cost mine, and it is, it is raising our overall cost of production per ounce of silver. And when I sell it, my analysts tell me that the price of my stock is going to go up fifty to hundred million dollars. So not only I'm getting the 15 from you, but I'm getting a big bump in market price, market cap. And, but it put us on a tight time frame, frankly, 45 days to do due diligence and everything else. And uh, we did a bridge loan um, and put in our own personal money and got it done. Um, but we had to put up a million dollar deposit by, by, by May 1st. So we got that done. And then we got the 15 raised by the end of June or first part of June and closed the deal on time. And when Dennis put out his cue about 30 or 35, 40 days later, uh, he was absolutely correct. <laughs> his, okay. his market cap did expand by 50 or $100 million. But that, that mine was operating. It was a couple hundred, a couple hundred miners, a couple hundred people working there in, in the Coeur d'Alene district. Uh, and of course, that is now called America's Gold and Silver. And, and uh, you know, has been operating, uh, continued to operate since 2006 as, as a result of that transaction. I'm not certain if Cora would actually have closed it or what they would have done, but, uh, you know, they, they had decided or made a corporate decision to not put a lot more money into it. So it may have closed. So it's, it's been a good thing from my perspective, having grown up in, you know, in Wallace, right, right next to the Galena and being able to keep those, those jobs, you know, in the county in the state and uh and see the galena mine continue to thrive uh, and you know under the current wonderful leadership of of america's gold and silver who've done right by it let's say of course yeah. recently eric sprott uh, put in a vote of confidence and put a large amount of money into it as well so that was a good thing um, yeah you know so, so these are the types of things and most recently i actually went back to the Coeur d'Alene district and and spent four years starting in late 2016 getting the Bunker Hill mine revived. And, uh, you know, the challenge there was um, signing a consent decree with the EPA, which, which nobody over, basically the Bunker Hill mine closed uh, and, and uh, went through a bankruptcy situation in 1992. And in 1994, a private owner named Bob Hopper bought the property, uh, Placer Mining Company. Um, and you know he did he did a great job of, of trying to hold the mine together keep the assets intact and so on and so forth over that long period of time the issue there was was environmental liability so it's a brownfield project and you've got the epa environmental liability hanging over your head and you know it was it was kind of an immovable a movable wall not you know not movable wall uh, that people couldn't penetrate and get around and and you know it took us a couple of years but in May of 2018, we were able to negotiate a settlement and consent decree with the EPA, which cleared the way for investment in the Bunker Hill. And uh, that got you know, approved by the U.S. District Court. It got approved all the way up to the very top of the EPA, to the very top of the Department of Justice. And um, you know, in, in uh, last year, uh, in 2020, April of 2020, we, we brought in a team of of new managers, new people, new board, uh, you know, uh, uh, many talented people from, from Barrick actually are now in charge and they're doing all the right things to get the mine moving again. And it deserves to be in production. Frankly, it was one of the great base metal mines, base metal silver mines of, of, of the United States. Uh, 
starting in 1885. So, you know, these are the kinds, you know, that has yet to sort of prove itself in the market, but I'm very confident that, that the company is, as it demonstrates the great amount of metal that's left in that mine and with $1.35 zinc prices, I mean, it's, it's, it's poised to print money in my opinion. Um, yeah. And there's, there's a big discovery potential there as well. Yeah. So, you know, these are the kinds of things I've done and, 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 you know, obviously, if you're going to be in this business, there's some things that haven't worked along the way. Um, and, you know, but you learn those lessons. You learn lessons from the things that don't work, right? Uh, yeah. You know, those probably certainly. more important lessons maybe than the things that work sometimes. Yeah. Obviously, you've had a, a long career. Um, and you mentioned a few times luck. You've obviously had quite a few successes in the past. And like you just said, you've had a lot of failures as well. You mentioned luck quite a few times, but is it luck? I mean, you've been doing you've been doing a lot of the work. You've been looking at a lot of properties, a lot of deals, um, and you've been. I take it you've been positive a lot of the time. Whether some obviously a lot of projects fell by the wayside. Um, can you? I suppose can you give us an overview of those ones that were were luck and worked? Why did they work and why did some didn't work? Well, you know, maybe, maybe luck isn't quite the right word exactly. Um, you know, you know, maybe it's, it's more circumstances. It's, it's, it's timing. I think timing may be the better word, you know, for example, you know, when you looked at the conversations we were having in 2002 with, with Newmont and, and Toby Mancuso, opening that door and talking to, you know, Steve Ocker at that time, who was with Newmont. Uh, and, and, you know, it didn't hurt that Toby's uh, uncle, Jim Mancuso, had been a very successful mining entrepreneur. Uh, and, and Steve Ocker knew him well. So it was, a, it, was a, it was not only, it was not only circumstances and timing, but it was people uh, surrounding, you know, just the right people being in the right places at the right time. Um, and, you know, Newmont looking to divest things after they had acquired uh, Franco. Uh, so you had really the Franco team that, that was really a transactional kind of team in place. And they were running the show in terms of divestitures, you know, um, and moved pretty quickly because, you know, I mean, they built a huge company and a very successful company. And some people argue the most successful company ever built, you know, in some yeah. ways. Uh, and they didn't do it by 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 sort of sitting and contemplating things for very long. You know, they they would move quickly if they saw an opportunity for a royalty or something. They were after it, so they were moving. You know, they moved quickly because if if the transaction didn't happen quickly, frankly, I mean, the gold price was changing rapidly enough that Newmont might have rethought it. So it isn't. You know, I guess luck luck is an easy summer summary word, but really. Uh, when you look at it, it is, it is the people, it is the timing, it is the project all sort of coming together. Uh, you know, the same thing with, with High Plains Uranium, that one property I mentioned. You know, we we're talking to Jim Bachman just a few days ago, actually, because we're looking at a, I don't know if you know what a notice of intent to locate is. If you have a split mineral estate in the United States, for example, if the surface rights belong to a private rancher, and the, the mineral rights have been retained by the Bureau of Land Management typically, or even the Forest Service. You can go locate the minerals on that property, but you gotta give notice to the landowner. And, you know, we were talking about this one property and it was a split estate property. And we had to file these NOITLs. And uh, once you give notice of intent to locate, keep in mind, this is kind of the uranium rush. It's like a land rush going on. Once you file those NOITLs, it gives public notice that you're contemplating staking this ground. And there were people uh, in Wyoming at the Bureau of Land Management watching those noidal, that noidal list every day. And, and frankly, energy metals people were watching it. And that's how they ended up with half the project because they saw our noidals. Um, so, so we were able though to get, get half of it done under this really kind of cumbersome process of, of notice of intent to locate. And again, so, so that was, you know, having the right person in place in the form of Jim Bachman, who was very aggressive about, you know, for a small company and not with a lot of funding, Energy Metals was way better funded than we were at the time. 
yeah. uh, with more people and more resources. But we just, you know, the tenacity, I would say, of Mr. Boffman at the time was what made that a success. And as it turned out, that became the key property why Energy Metals decided to buy us for, you know, a very nice number, uh, you know, a very nice premium to the market cap at the time that we sold out to Energy Metals. And then Uranium One, a few months later, played a premium for Energy Metals. So our shareholders got a double bump. Uh, so that you know that isn't necessarily luck. I guess it was it was more again about about having the right person in the right spot at the time, and that and that was this, at the president of the company, Mr. Boffman, being where he was at the time. Yeah, and, and I suppose yeah, and I suppose it's having the confidence and keep knocking on people's doors, keep promoting yourself, telling people who you are, what you do. Um, so it's that it's that momentum and drive. Oh, yeah. and, and, and the need to keep going, um, which I, I believe then brings the luck and those breaks. Um, because if you did half of that work, you might have not got those breaks. Wouldn't get to the finish line. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, there were a lot of uranium companies that, that kind of rode it all the way up and then rode it all the way back down. And some of them are riding it up again. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and so, some of the many of the same faces that that, uh, that were in the business, you know, in the uranium side of things in 2006, 2007 timeframe, uh, you know, are, are, are have created very successful companies, have advanced those companies, have added to the properties. They've, they've also culled the properties that probably don't make sense. Um, and, and now they've got very streamlined, uh, you know, companies that are awaiting a, uh, another move in uranium, which I see coming as a result of, you know, the need to, to reduce carbon emissions. I mean, you know, it's my personal opinion that, that nuclear is, is a big part of that, you know? So, yeah. so I think they're in the right place at the right time. And, you know, I've, I've dipped my toe a bit back into the uranium uh, space a little bit with some, some properties that we've tied up, but uh, okay. there's, there's some very good properties, uh, companies that are out there, but again, they, they ended up kind of right. Some of them wrote it all the way up, wrote it down and, and, and are still around to write it up again. So, you know, there we go. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to give us an overview of um, Gold Express Mines. Yeah, Gold Express started as an idea in June of 2020. So, you know, sort of in the midst of depths of COVID, um, you know, we saw the movements in gold. This is again, myself and, and Mr. Crosby. And, uh, and we thought, well, you know, Let's let's acquire some things, and so we went out and and found, uh, you know, we found a property down in Southern California that we liked a lot down in San Bernardino County, uh, you know, that that looked very interesting. Uh, we acquired some things in Sierra County, Nevada, uh, California, also. Uh, you know, there's a lot left in California in the motherload country, and people are having a lot of success in in, in Southern California and Imperial County and San Bernardino County that with with finding stuff and also getting it permitted. You know, California is not a uniform state. You know, some counties are much more difficult than others. But California, one of the things you gotta understand is that, is that the counties have a big, big role in the permitting process, both at the exploration stages as well as, as, as further development stages. And so we think, uh, you know, certain parts of San Bernardino County are good places to operate. We found a good project there. I like the mother load. I think there's a lot left in the mother load. I mean, you know, California, they didn't call it the golden state for, for nothing. It's, you know, it, it produced 115, 120 million ounces out of the state and uh, there's a lot left. So, you know, if you can manage the, manage the permitting and manage the location, um, you know, there should be a lot to do in California in this, in this, in this, you know, current gold boom. Um, you know, we actually then uh, acquired eight different properties in Nevada as a result of a single stroke uh, deal with a guy that, that had uh, a prospector who had uh, picked up these properties over a period of eight or 10 years and, and made a decision just to sell out. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we, we started exploring those properties. These are all early stage properties, but do have some historical work on them. Um, and, uh, we also picked up some things in, in Arizona, um, early stage things, which, which we shot some geophysics on a couple of the properties. We've done sampling work. Uh, you know, we've, we've uh, done the basic sort of things that need to be done uh, preliminary to drilling in those properties. 
Um, and then a friend of mine from Spokane named Terry Dunn um, came to me and said, I've got, I've got a drill ready project for you in Western Montana, what he calls the East Coeur d'Alene Belt, which is right over the border from Idaho in Western Montana on the extensions, the eastward extensions of the, of the, of the Coeur d'Alene district. It's the same rocks, the same group of rocks same styles of mineralization. Um, you know, these are primarily silver, lead, zinc, copper type deposits. So we'd be drilling a couple of those projects. We actually got the drill permit about a week ago from, from the Forest Service. Uh, we'll be drilling a couple of those projects in, in August or so of this year. Uh, and then Terry also uh, got us in touch with a group over in, uh, in Dillon, Montana uh, that owned the Yellow Band Mine, um, which has about a 300,000 ounce resource on it which we think is expandable, but pretty much ready to get, actually ready to, to do the next step, which uh, we view as a bulk sample out of the mine. So we're permitting right now with the uh, Forest Service and the Montana DEQ, a 10,000 ton bulk sample out of the yellow band. You know, the resource that's been calculated a number of different times by different people is about 300,000 ounces total, runs about a third of an ounce of gold, a little less, maybe 0.3 ounces per ton, uh, gold and about two and a half ounces of silver. But it's pretty thick zones, 15, 20 foot thick zones. So we think very amenable to bulk mining. And so, you know, our next step is to go take a bulk step test out of it and uh, get a feel for what the ground is gonna be like and, and what the metallurgy does and then see if there's a mine there, you know, frankly. There's a nearby mill uh, located in Phillipsburg, Montana that potentially could be used. Um, you know, you can't cyanide leach really in Montana anymore. Technically, you can cyanide leach for underground, and this would be an underground mine. But we understand the, the permitting of a new cyanide facility in Montana is going to be a very long road. So, so we're looking for alternatives. We're actually doing metallurgical testing at two different facilities right now, one in Denver, one up in Butte, to, uh, to see if we can use flotation successfully. Okay. on this ore. If we can't, we're looking at the possibility of shipping to a, a vat leach facility located in Utah, believe it or not. But, you know, if you don't have, if you don't have any CapEx for the milling facility, uh, you can afford quite a bit of trucking. So, yeah. you know, that's yeah. how we're looking at it. But, um, uh, go ahead. Yeah, carry on. Now, I, I was just going to ask, um, how, how, does, how does it take well, how long does it take to explore and evaluate any sort of gold and silver deposits and properties the right way? Obviously, you've looked at so many, so many projects. How do you, how do you look at and analyze any projects? What's the best way and how do you go about it? Well, if you're starting from scratch, which most of the time when you're working on something in the United States or, or frankly, uh, Canada, other places, uh, you're hardly ever starting from scratch per se, because a lot of work's already been done somewhere. Somebody's looked at it typically, you know. So, you know, the first step I like to take uh, is is obviously get two or three very experienced guys to have a look at it and see if they can find any, uh, you know, fatal flaws, you know, in the idea about this property. That might be geological, or it might also be permitting risk. It might be, you know, proximity to wilderness, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, you know, assuming that there's no big fatal flaws uh, related to location and so on and so forth, you know, and if it's in the Western United States, there's probably somebody that's looked at it, you know, and typically a major has already looked at it. At some point, you just got to find the data. So, you know, we make a real big effort to find the data first. Something that somebody's already did, you know, it's very inexpensive exploration, frankly. And with the internet the way it is and everything being connected, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't take as, you know, USGS stuff is mostly all online, for example. Bureau of Mines stuff is online. Most state bureau of mines put everything online. You know, Arizona, for example, is great. Nevada is great. Idaho is pretty good. Uh, you know, there's resources like the Anaconda Collection at the University of Wyoming where you've got all of Anaconda's old data you know, which is voluminous. Uh, you know, it, it's a little bit of effort to get get a copy of a, you know, particularly with COVID this last year, it's tougher to get things out of the Anaconda collection, but things coming back online, you know, you, you send somebody to 
the University of Wyoming and, and give them two or three days of consulting in the Anaconda collection and find anything they can on the project you're looking at. And mm. it's surprising how much some of these companies looked at. People like Anaconda, as I mentioned, Sarco, Duval Corporation, uh, you know, all these companies had big efforts in the past and it's well worth it to look at what they've already done. Yeah. So that's the first step we take. And then, and then, you know, you've got to duplicate their data too. You know, I mentioned this thing in Southern California, we found a great report uh, with Duval that had done a lot of work out there. They'd done some holes. They did a lot of sampling. We sent a cruise out there and frankly, we haven't been able to duplicate their sampling. So I've been a bit disappointed. But that's better to learn that early than later. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's that we haven't killed the property by any means. We have some. We have some pretty good looking uh, uh, soils. You know that show some, uh, some some pretty good responses and anomalous. You know anomalies and many different indicator metals. But what we haven't been able to duplicate is the chip sampling they did. You know we don't have a sampling map of where exactly they went. So we're we're trying to find out. Okay, you know. I mean, they were getting one and a half to two grams in a lot of different places. We haven't been able to duplicate that. So that's a warning flag for that property, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. but I think I think it's very well, that, that's a first step. That's a great first step, particularly in areas like the US or Canada, Chile, more advanced countries. You know, when you get into other places, you might be the first person looking at that property seriously. That's a whole different world. And frankly, it's probably beyond my, my realm of expertise. But there's some just tremendous guys that are out there that have the tools, you know. And uh, you know, I, I was very impressed, for example, with with a guy named Sean Ryan. You might know that, no relation, but you know, he's he's had some great discoveries in Canada, and now he's out in Newfoundland. And you know, he took the approach of a of a instead of doing a soils thing over a month or so, or you know, with two or three guys, you know, he takes the approach: let's get 50 people and put them on it. And, and get it done in a day or two. And, you know, he does it, you know, everybody's got an iPad and they've got real-time data and, and he has a assay lab on site. So everything gets assayed. So when the team is there, he can go, you know, if he finds a hotspot, he can, he can go collect more samples instead of waiting for the lab to get back to you. And then, Oh, you know, by that time, the field season's over. I mean, it's just very, shortening, it's just shortening the time, time frame. And it also allows him to, you know, sort of fill it or kill it, you know, which is great, mm. uh, you know, I mean, so there's people doing that kinds of thing. I mean, people are making use of, of, of databases and as you know, and satellite data like they've never done before and so on and so forth. So, you know, um, there, there's no question that, that interconnectivity and our, you know, our ability to, to make use of the networks and the internet and such is, is improving our capabilities on the ground. And that, that's the kind of innovation we need in the business, right? So Yeah, certainly. Um, the financial markets are sort of very strong at the moment, and it seems obviously a lot of money slowly coming into the industry. Um, mm -hmm. Why do you think there's so much misallocation in the system? And, um, and how, I suppose, how can you protect your assets against um, inflation or devaluation? When you say misallocation, do you mean into the mining sector or just into into you know other sectors of the, of, of the economy or? I, uh, I, I suppose both. Obviously, there is a lot of money misallocation money in the overall economy, um, mm -hmm. but obviously there's going to be there's going to be money entering the mining industry, and I suppose at the moment it is probably going into good places. But as the the industry does pick up and more and more money comes into it. There's obviously going to then be mis misallocation sure. coming into the system. Well, yeah, I mean, so, so 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 you know, I mean, this is true of any 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 new industry, new technology, or any kind of a boom, you know, boom sector. You know, it's going to attract capital. You know, there's an old 19th century economist named Joseph Schumpeter. You may have heard of him before, but you know, he called it creative destruction, right? You know, I mean, if, if you'd been around on Wall Street in say 1999 to 2001 or two, the dot-com boom, right? That That's a perfect example of creative destruction. When capital gets allocated, people just sort of throw money at things. If you remember, people were saying, okay, I'm just gonna invest in anything dot-com, right? If you have a dot-com, I'll invest in it. 
Um, and then you can see some of that may be happening in, in, in uh, cryptocurrencies right now, right? This is, and, and you know, frankly, look at look at the dot coms is a perfect example. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of companies uh, that were around there that you, you thought, okay, this is definitely the winner, have gone by the wayside. And and who emerges as the winners? People like Amazon or Facebook or whoever. It's hard it's hard to figure out at the beginning, uh, but you know, ultimately it gets figured out by the market, right? Those companies, yeah. that, that's that's a process Schumpeter called creative destruction. So mining is cycles of boom and bust, uh, you know, and it depends on the metal prices. Cause I mean, you know, top price of copper went back to a buck right now and gold fell back down to $800. You know, we may as well go figure out something else to do for a while until mining comes back, right? It's, it's a boom and bust. So mining has this cycle of creative destruction every time we have these, you know, I'm not talking about the small cycles up and down. I'm talking about the major cycle. You get this creative destruction uh, type type of cycle. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, people, what, what do people do in the mining business? They, they dust off projects that somebody else had already been working on and they try and carry it to the net, you know, two steps forward, you know, one step back type of type of process. Right. Yeah. Like, most of the properties, you know, Yellow Band is a perfect example of the, the, the property uh, that, that we're working on in Montana. I mean, it was mined in the 1940s, direct shipped to uh, the Anaconda Smelter located near Butte. They mined silver and gold out of it. The current owners in the 80s picked it up, picked up the property. Uh, the current owners are mining people. Uh, they explored it. They drilled it. They, they did all the right things. They chip sampled it. They, they moved it towards... Uh, production by permitting it. They had it permitted in the late 90s. Uh, and then Montana then Montana imposed their cyanide ban and the whole thing fell apart at that point. Nobody, you know, nobody pushed it forward. It sat on the shelf for nearly 30 years and now we're dusting it back off again, trying to make it work in this cycle. So, you know, there, there are this process of, of boom and bust uh, and it's all necessary, frankly, in order to sort out who wins and who loses. And that's that's what the economy is really all about, you know. And I think the the greatest problem I see with this whole process of creative destruction, if you want to call it that, is, is interference, you know, by the government, frankly. And and you know, I don't mean that, you know, holding interest rates low, we know, misallocates capital. So you know, the need for the government to have interest rates low is, is it's required in order to finance the existing debt, which is gargantuan and can't be financed at 8%. So it has to be financed at one or 2%. Interest rates are being artificially held low. As a result of that, people can borrow at very cheap terms. You know that's a recipe for misallocation of capital and it's happening all around us. Yeah. So, right. you know, uh, in terms of this business, I think that you know we have a we have a lot of people in this sector that have really lived through these booms and busts. They expect them, and therefore, I think people are pretty tight with their money in this business. They're pretty careful. But the problem with this business is, frankly, I've been in this business thirty years, and you know most people I deal with on a daily basis have been in this business about the same amount of time. We do have a number of very creative, very uh, intelligent, good people coming up but there's just too few of them. And so we, you know, this sector, I think, um, you, you know, is a pretty lean sector and people do know how to spend their money wisely. I believe in this business um, because it's a tough business at the end yeah. of the day. But I think what we're going to hit the wall is, is the fact that many of us are just, you know, nearing retirement age, you know, and yeah, and I'm seeing around forever, you know. Yeah, and I, I obviously I'm working recruitment, and I'm seeing that anyway with yeah. with some of the some of the certain roles that I'm recruiting, whether it's a, a technical role, um, you can see there's fewer and fewer people that are that have the necessary skills for the particular role that I'm recruiting for, um, right. and that's that's a, that's across the world that you're seeing it. Um, so yeah, there is a lot lot less people coming into the industry than mm -hmm. previous years um whether now we're obviously entering this super super cycle whatever you want to call it whether there's now that the awareness or, or the awareness will slowly 
come to more more people across the world that mining is is a necessity it's it's a primary primary industry um hopefully now there might be a bit of a drive to get more people uh, into the industry and obviously over the more recent years hopefully hopefully and i hope mining companies are looking at that and trying to trying to go out to those to the uh, communities to um other industries and trying to get people into the mining industry hopefully they are looking at that um but certainly there is a there is less people coming into the industry and, and obviously that needs to change you know i, I i'm pretty optimistic that that uh, we'll fill the gap but right now there you know for the next two or three years four years five years whatever this boom this boom is going to be marked by a, a critical shortage of people not only you know engineers and and managers and such, but 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 workers, miners in, in you know miners. There's not enough skilled miners out there. There's not enough skilled drillers out there. As people, you know, recruit, as people spread the word, so to speak, that these jobs are, are good paying jobs. Uh, you know, and they're here to stay for a time. Um, you know, we'll attract more people in. Uh, but even companies of the size of Gold Express have to be prepared to invest in people to train them. Yeah, it's the only way to get people and, you know, train people and, and make, you know, make a fair and good work environment, good benefits and pay and all the things you need to attract people these days. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that. You know, one of the things about mining, it's been true in the past, is that is that many people follow their parents into this business, you know, which is what I did. My father worked for Sarco for 40 plus years. And, you know, his father was was an entrepreneurial miner in Leadville. And, you know, my grandfather's uh, uncle was an entrepreneur in Leadville, Colorado. So, you know, that, that's how this thing goes. When I went to high school in Wallace, we had a, a vocational mining school where guys that were juniors and seniors in high school took half their day as a junior and senior and learned how to mine, which is, you know, mining companies supported that locally. And, and uh, they had a, you know a group of miners coming out of the high school every year that they recruited from, which was good. And, you know, I think we'll see programs like that reemerge. We yeah. have to. Yeah, certainly do. And it, yeah. and it shouldn't just focus on people, existing people in the industry, bringing their families in, obviously to, to have that skill shortage and to, to, to shorten that skill shortage. It needs to be people from the outside that may not know much about mine that may have heard about mining, um, and it's just educating them that it's a wonderful industry. It is an industry for life that you can get into. There is yep. these obviously peaks and troughs, um, but you live through those. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's just encouraging those people from outside into the industry, which hopefully um, we will start to see over the coming years. Well, and, and exactly, and I'm glad you added that point because it was a point that I didn't quite make that even, you know, generationally people are attracted to the business, but we need to reach outside of that, absolutely, and, and reach out to, other, to others. Yeah. You know, if you can get a job at one of these great mines when it's first starting up, I mean, you know, the person that came on in the Mesquite in 2002 has had a 20-year career there if they stayed there, right? Above yeah. Bunker Hill mine, when I, you know, I was looking through the old records, I mean, it started operating in 1885, operated continuously till 1981, almost a century. Now it's reopening, right? But, you know, they had some huge stopes there. And, and frankly, at that mine, you could have started working in a stope, which, as you probably know from being in the business, a stope is an area in the mine where you go mine the rock. It's where, where the rubber meets the road, right? You could have stepped into a stope there in the early 1930s and been in the same stope in the 1950s. In the same stope, not only the same mine. Okay. So, you know, mines can be wonderfully long lived assets once they're up and going. And it can be a lifetime career for people. Yeah. You know, we did the deal in 2006 at the Galena. Man, you know, most of the people there that were there in 2006, some of them are still there working, but many of them retired. And some of them started their careers there in the 1980s or so, and, and certainly are near retirement or retired right now. Um, but, you know, guys that hired on when we first took over the mine in 2006 at U.S. Silver and now America Silver, you know, it's going strong and 
they've been there like whatever it is 14 15 years so you know uh, it, it is not a short-lived business once you get one of these mines up and going because they're built for a long long you know typically long long lives yeah if the great ones anyway <laughs> yeah you've uh, obviously been in a few commodities and you mentioned obviously you've, you've been in gold you've been uranium what what commodity do you think is gonna explode over the coming years is it going to be one of the precious metals is it gold silver is it going to be uranium is it going to be copper is it going to be one of the battery metals is there for you is there going to be a focus on a particular commodity or you're looking at a few different commodities or do you think there's going to be one outstanding um, mineral commodity over the next say five five maybe ten years well i mean i i i you know, you didn't mention silver. I've always liked silver. I grew up in the Silver Valley, so to speak. Um, but I, I think copper, frankly, uh, you know, they call it Dr. Copper. With the demands that we're putting on copper for for uses in electric vehicles, for the talk about infrastructure that needs to be built, you know, rebuilt in the United States in order to do that. You know, and, and in the United States is just one country. Every country needs copper. So I think, you know, I don't know if it's going to explode further in price, but I think I think we're going to see copper at you know quite easily six seven dollars and remain there for a long period of time in order to coax enough copper out of the ground to meet all these needs. And again, you know, uh, I also question: Is that the best use for our copper? You know, are are we wisely using our copper at this point in time? You know, I mean, it's something I think we need to think about. Cobalt's another metal that's in short supply. You know, that that's going to be used in electric vehicles. You know, I know they're trying to diminish or reduce the amount of cobalt being used in certain batteries. It's a, it's a supply the United States doesn't have a lot of, and it's a critical yeah. element, strategic metal used in aircraft engines and many other esoteric applications. Is it the best use for this critical mineral? You know, which I, you know, that becomes a policy kind of question, but, but something that maybe people ought to pay more attention to. You know, people have sort of woke up to the rare earths, you know, and the, the critical supply shortage we have, and and many people have woken up to the fact that you you know the cell phone they use every day, every minute of their lives practically can't be built without rarers. And so you know, we don't tend to pay attention to these issues, and they become until they become real critical issues, which is scary. You know, I mean, yeah. it's kind of kind of not a good thing. We don't have a little more foresight uh, into into some of these elements. Um, you know. It wouldn't surprise me, though, that uh, that the platinum, palladium, PGM group is is also uh, one that gets really in sharply into focus in this in this upcoming era. And, yeah. you know, it already has in some respects. But uh, again, there's not that much of it. It's certainly in the Western U.S., right? Not very yeah. much. So. Yeah. so concluding, what's the outlook for Gold Express Mines? Well, I mean, what we want to do, uh, as I mentioned, is, is is it's a private company at the moment. We expect, you know, to go public in the right at the right time in the next year or so, uh, in some fashion, either in Canada or possibly in London. Uh, you know, we've, I've listed some things in London in the past, or you know, maybe here in the United States. But what we'd like to do is either be in or near, you know, production at the Yellow Band property. Uh, you, you know around the time we go public so you know our focus in the next year or year and a half is to get that property in production we'd like to have cash flow we'd like to you know separate ourselves in that respect uh, from some of the other more exploration oriented companies uh, which i think you know a lot of investors like to see uh, having cash flow and not having to go back to the market uh, you know to fund exploration programs so so that's what the outlook is we got drilling programs happening as i mentioned Western Montana, I think, you know, either later this year, or early next year, we'll drill some things in Nevada that we've been working on pretty hard. Uh, possibly one of the targets down in Arizona. The focus on, on, on Gold Express is going to be uh, achievement of production. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, we're doing this bulk sample test and finishing up our metallurgical work, but we'll lead to production uh, at Yellow Band in Montana. And following that, uh, you know, we'll also have uh, drilling programs happening at various projects. Uh, in Nevada, Arizona, uh, um, Western Montana, 
which should lead to some excitement as well. So all of that leads towards a listing uh, sometime, uh, you know, within about a year or so. That's the plan. Yeah. But we'd like to be a listed company and in, in either in production or very close to production with a plan to achieve some cash flow and, and earnings. Yeah. Well, it seems you've got your hands full. You've got a lot of uh, lot of projects uh, coming yep. online um, over the over the course of time. So um, wish wish you well in uh, in your future. Um, you if our if our audience wants to reach out to you if they've got any questions. Um, how can they go about doing that? Are you on any uh, social media as well? Oh, I'm on LinkedIn. And also my my email is jr at goldexpressminds.com. That's jr at goldexpressminds.com. And, uh, you know, just reach out. I'd be happy to talk to anybody about our plans. And if they had questions about comments on any of the content that we covered, uh, I'd be happy to talk to them about it. Yeah, no worries. Um, so I really appreciate your time, John. Um, you and yeah, our audience, appreciate if you can um, um, share and like this episode, share it amongst your friends, family, other people in the mining industry, and maybe people that are not in the mining industry that um, that wants to, I suppose, get a better understanding of what mining is about. Um, obviously, look at hearing John's career, what he's done. Um, so yeah, appreciate if you can... Um, um, pass this episode on to to other people. We will absolutely do that. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's good to reach out beyond our our sort of safe envelope or safe zone of people and and uh, and spread the word about mining. It uh, it it's a you know it's a very critical industry for for, for the good of everybody. Certainly, and uh, and you never know, people may listen to this and decide to uh, to get into the industry, which is obviously what we discussed and what, and what we need. You bet. Yeah. Thanks yeah. A lot. Very much for your time. Yeah. And I appreciate your time, John. Um, and I appreciate the audience for listening. As I mean, and as I said, keep sharing this episode with, and I appreciate your time for listening. So until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.